You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Falls of Clyde is an aging ship that several nonprofits hope to save. It's a bit of navigation history that they believe could be physically moved to Scotland. DOT spokesman Jai Cunningham talked to us this morning about the department's decision to cancel the award. We did send out the Department of Transportation uh, Harbors Division. We did send out a notice uh, to Falls of Clyde International uh, that the contract was going to be uh, rescinded. Uh, part of that, there were several different conditions for compliance that were set forth in the request for proposal, and that included securing a performance bond. Uh, the conditions just were not met after five months, and so the department uh, canceled the conditional award uh, that had been granted to Falls of Clyde International. Catherine, the important part moving forward is Harbors Division really wants to continue to try and pursue viable options for removing this vessel. As you said, with June 1, less than a month away, and, and of course folks here know that that's hurricane season that runs you know, all the way until the end of November, so for six months. Uh, we are still looking to remove the vessel, and in that way we make sure that really the primary port, uh, the largest port, the largest harbor in the state of Hawaii, we need that to remain clear and navigable. And obviously, um, Falls of Clyde is a concern that we continue to have, so stay tuned. You know, I'm not sure exactly where this is going to go, but but Harbor's Department is, you know, wanting and is aware that something needs to be done with the ship. It's been many years that it's sat there at Pier 7, and there needs to be resolution. There needs to be some sort of movement, that's for sure. Can you say whether there's any hope at all? that uh, something could be negotiated with the performance bond? That I'm not certain of. And I, I do think, uh, you know, when you, you see the release, I do think that there was time, some five months, that uh, there tried to be some movement, and we were hoping for some movement from uh, Falls of Clyde International. They weren't able to secure that performance bond, and, uh, you know, we felt like that wasn't going to happen and, and, you know, sent them a notice that uh, we were going to uh, terminate the conditional award. Obviously, with the hurricane season upon us, it's unlikely that we will see Falls of Clyde moved during hurricane season. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's safe to say. Uh, Obviously, it's been many, many years that this has been, you know, I don't want to date either one of us, but you and I have covered this for uh, probably longer than we want to admit. Um, uh, So I'm sure I speak for a lot of folks. It can be a little frustrating because uh, obviously – that ship needs to be removed with the possibility of hurricane season, with the potential of a, a, a dangerous storm hitting us. The last thing we would need is Honolulu Harbor to have any sort of impediments, any sort of a, a problem that wouldn't allow large container ships, barges, different things like that. Because when we're talking about Honolulu Harbor, we're not just talking about the island of Oahu. Everything comes in through Honolulu Harbor. And then, of course, you're talking about neighbor islands. So, I mean, you're talking about you know, from Hanalei to Hilo, uh, being dependent on what comes in and out of Honolulu Harbor. So uh, to say that uh, the harbor is uh, critical is probably an understatement. It's absolute and and valuable as far as uh, uh, being able to respond to any sort of a disaster that might hit the islands, not just Oahu, but any uh, of our uh, neighbor islands. That was Department of Transportation spokesman Jai Cunningham. The group Falls of Clyde International from Glasgow sent HPR a written statement in response to the cancellation. David O'Neill writes that uh, the 50% performance bond was problematic. The state had initially requested uh, or issued a request for proposal for 10%, but then canceled it. It acknowledged that it could not get that uh, 50% level of bonding and that a London broker called the bond excessive and simply unachievable. O'Neill called the decision to rescind the award crazy, saying it could agree on a 10% bond and minimize risk risk to the state, and added that the Coast Guard and the EPA had reviewed its plan. O'Neill also said that Matson Shipping and Historic Hawaii called for flexibility, but DOT decided to go ahead and cancel the award. The statement goes on to say, we are deeply disappointed at these events. However, we remain ready to discuss and come to Hawaii immediately to find a solution if DOT decides they are willing to negotiate terms with us in order to remove the Falls of Clyde from Pier 7.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Today in the Backyard Quiz, we're trekking first to the southern tip of the Big Island. Destination, Papakolea Beach, also called Pu'u'omahana. It's a secluded bay in the Ka'u district, and after the rugged trail through jagged lava fields, you have to navigate steep terrain to reach the ocean. And the first thing to catch your eye is the unusual hue of the sand. The beach in this area is made from olivine, also known as evening emerald, a silicate uh, mineral containing iron and magnesium. The continual beating of the waves have eroded the nearby cinder cone and broken down the basalt lava into glassy green olivines. Beaches like these are rare, but there are actually two green sand beaches in the U.S., can you tell us where the second one is located? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NairitHawaii.com. Here now, Kamehameha Schools and its developer, High Ridge Costa, has been shopping around a plan to build a mixed-use project that includes two 20-story towers of low-income rentals in an area near the Waipahu Rail Station and the Bus Depot facility. We talked to Mohanad Mohana, president of High Ridge Costa Development Company, and Serge Krivatsi, the director of planning and development within KS Commercial Real Estate Division. The team appeared at a Waipahu Neighborhood Board meeting last week to share more about its plans. Keovalau refers to connecting the bodies of water in the Pearl Harbor Westlock area with a gathering place. The project has yet to be submitted to the city for permits, but conceptual plans are posted online on the KS website, and additional public meetings are planned for the community to find out more. We begin with developer Mo Mohana talking about the vision for the 3.9-acre parcel. What we've been trying to do, Catherine, and we've been working on this for a while, through the outreach that we did and analyzing the site that's there. So there is two parts to the site. One is uh, Malka of Hikimoi. Uh, they're single family to the back, keeping that, keeping that as a senior, about four or five stories within the 60-ish feet. And then the Makai side that fronts on Farrington, that one, when we went out and researched with the community, there was a big focus on that they want updated uh, new commercial retail. And one of the main focuses was that they wanted a market. There is an existing Times market, as you know, and they wanted a market. And by trying to design a market on the ground floor with the sufficient square footage and parking that is on grade, because that's conducive to people going to the market, uh, we had to do the rest of the parking on top and keep the site open. In doing that, we had to, on the Makai side, push really the footprint of any residential building, because you can't build on top of a parking with a grocery store because of the columns of the buildings. It renders it unusable nearly. We pushed the buildings to the side but the height of the buildings, we made sure those were on Farrington Highway. We stayed away from the neighborhood. We also made sure that these buildings were perpendicular to Farrington Highway and not parallel, to be not as imposing. Also in the Waipaho community is the iconic smokestack, the YMCA smokestack, that sits at, at a higher elevation. And again, we made sure that 
two things there, that the overall height of our building from a ground level relative to the ground level of the stack is, is lower than the itonic stack, as well as we made sure that there is a large opening so the visual of the smokestack is clear. But the driving force, driving factor here in creating the design on the Mackay side was accommodating the supermarket and the retail that when we went out to the community seemed to be uh, very high on their priority, that they wanted refreshed and updated retail. And so that's kind of the genesis. And then the other thing we did is we tried to not do standard sidewalks, but we pushed the sidewalks quite a bit to create areas that we can have outdoor seating. We created also outdoor land and hardscaped areas where people can naturally sit and hang out and corners where you can have music and, not, and people gathering places. We created a significant opening on the Mackay side, again, is where the concentration is, uh, that connects pathway between Farrington and Hickimoy because of the mass transit, both bus and rail, that's a few hundred feet down the road. All of that resulted in the remaining footprint for the residential on the Mackay side, one building on Waipahu Depot Road, uh, which is EVA, uh, was under 8,000 square foot footprint. And the other one, Diamond Head, on the other end of the Mackay site is at under 10,000. So the footprint is really small. And the only way then was to go up. So we're trying to balance what we felt uh, seemed to be all the needs of the community. In addition, one of the driving uh, factors in our design of how the site laid out is we wanted to make sure that we had sufficient parking. In most TOD areas, as in this one, there is a significantly reduced requirement for parking, but we felt it is important to park uh, the required count for the commercial space that is practically being replaced with brand new, as well as make sure that we have sufficient parking for the residential units to minimize the impact on the neighborhood. So when you try to do a lot, you know, creating the grocery store open space, creating parking on a ground level, creating the rest of the commercial, creating significant setbacks so people can sit and have tables and areas to gather, and then creating sufficient parking, you're not left with much. So it's really, to think about it, it's a planned type community where we try to address everything that the community needs. And one of the important factors in a successful commercial component is having people that live there right above it as we're trying to do or right in it so that there is foot traffic and they go down and they use the stores on the weekends in the evening and that was another concern that was raised by the neighborhood that of crime they felt walking in that area after sunset they they, they didn't feel comfortable doing so and if you just built commercial and new commercial you're back in the same situation but when you built people that live up above the commercial that are going to use it now you have foot traffic during the weekends at night and we believe that is an important catalyst to revitalize the area bring foot traffic and help any new commercial that's going to come there be successful sir you know i mean this is an opportunity to to give you know waipahu a refresh and yet at the same time try and respect the history of that neighborhood yeah no i, I completely agree and, and when kamehameha schools looks at sites like this i mean we really like the location and, and we've got a number of, of locations around the rails um, rail line and the rail station and and the reason why we looked at this site particularly is because we had these older ground leases that were coming due so this presented uh, Kamehameha schools an opportunity to to kind of re-envision this property in this this neighborhood and what we like about it is it's very close to the rail station so to us it made a lot of sense to provide you know new retail new commercial spaces replace the existing older stuff as well as provide opportunities for affordable housing which is important to command schools and and supports you know our mission so in addition to providing affordable housing you know this this, this ground lease that we're doing with Irish Casa helps generate revenue to fund our educational mission as well. When we look at areas like this, I mean, to us, it's try to redefine that term placemaking, and, and, and we call it 
placekeeping. So as part of this development, we really want to make sure that we prioritize our cultural histories and, and knowledge and emphasize the processes you know, and an authenticity of the neighborhood. So realize that height is an issue, but there are a lot of other neat things about this location that we're going to really kind of activate the, the ground floor with native wine plantings and themes to kind of maintain the cultural identity of the neighborhood. By bringing the, this number of people in and by having the residential on top of the retail commercial space, what that does is it kind of activates the neighborhood as Mo was saying, and create, creates this energy, and that should help reduce crime and it helps it makes it a more comfortable place to be, you know, after hours, and also creates kind of a gathering place where people from not only the immediate neighborhood, but maybe Coppola and other areas, like, will come down and, you know, on a Friday, Saturday night, come down and have dinner and sit outside and enjoy being outdoors and, and you know, have some nice gathering places. So we're excited about this project, and you know, we continue to reach out to the community and, and talk to people about the issues that have come up, you know, height being one of them, and also we want to make sure we manage traffic and things of that nature. So, you know, we're, we're excited about it. Well, I'm a townie, and I happen to go through Waipahu, you know, Depot Road, you know, the old mill there, and, you know, our Cabo General store. But I got stuck in the traffic, and it was like, wow, this is really intense. You know, but there are places in Waipahu, you know, that I love to go to, you know, Taniokas, right? And, and so I'm willing to, to make the trek out there. And, and so, you know, as you see the possibilities for rail along that route, I mean, I recall when uh, the first time the the trains got going on the tracks there and the kids in the schoolyard were just, you know, on the on uh, on the playground and they were jumping up and waving and uh, they were so excited to finally see rail, you know, take shape and, and uh, see those trains going by, you know, so an opportunity really to revitalize you know that older neighborhood the really neat thing about this is we're, we're a two-minute walk from the Waipahu bus center as well as the Puahala transit station so while we're providing parking for the residents because you know people still want to hold on to their cars we see a lot of people using the rail to you know commute into town or go go further ever and talk about a, an ideal location to have um, a new home um, and, and the fact that it's you know, the pricing for these rental units will be at 60% area median income or less. I mean, that's that's truly affordable housing. So we're, that's what we're excited about. You're talking about about, what, 500 rental units? Is that accurate? About 500, yes, at this point, yeah. Between all three buildings, uh, there's a senior building. One of the buildings focuses on young people that are single or couples, primarily studios and one bedroom. And the other building focuses on young families. It has a combination of one, two, and three bedrooms. And, Catherine, I just wanted to comment and add to what Serge mentioned about uh, the cars and the traffic. Because this is a 100% affordable, a 60% area median income or less, uh, the reality is many people who are going to move from within the neighborhood that may have two cars or have a car, having such proximity where they don't have to drive to get to the rail station or the bus station, we believe these are the families that are very dollar sensitive today with insurance going up, gas prices going up, that they actually may have less vehicles. The other thing that I wanted to point out in most of our communities, including those in Hawaii, and we have one in Kapolei currently, the majority, over 50-60% of our residents come from within the neighborhood directly. So it's not like we're bringing in new traffic. It's people who live in Waipahu that will most likely move into those and if they have cars, by being able to have to be within walking distance to those transit centers and being workforce families and, and seniors, the likelihood that they're going to re go down to one car or eliminate a car is much higher than if this was high-end luxury market rate condominium or otherwise. I recall, you know, reading a comment uh, from one of the neighborhood board members who, you know, was saying, well, we don't want Kaka'ako high-rises in Waipahu. You know, they just have a real sense of community and history and and are you know really protective of that? Um, I mean, understandably. But do you think there's a, a compromise in this plan? We hope so. Our objective is really to work up to work with the community, and we have we have in our outreaches, and we had uh, we had public town hall meetings, even though they were virtual during COVID. Uh, many elected officials and others. When I saw the list of who attended attended there. And if you look at the comments, uh, we had quite a bit of support uh, for the proposed development. Yes, there were people who 
basically continue during the meetings, both at the town hall as well as the neighborhood, who are saying we don't, you know, we don't want height, and if it's height, that's we're not willing to listen. But we have many members, equally many members within the community and the Waipahu Neighborhood Board who feel this is a good, well-planned community. We are not here, to, honestly, to dictate what we want. Uh, and I said that in the very first Waipahu Neighborhood Board meeting that I attended. I said, I respect the opinions that are being delivered. We are just trying to encourage a dialogue within the board itself and within the community at large, because we're hearing different points of view. Yes, we're hearing concern about the height. And at the same time, we're hearing from others we don't have a problem with Hyde. We would like to see the retail revitalized. We would like to see the market stay. We don't want like big chains. We want kind of mom and pop businesses. Uh, we believe we need this housing. Some are even saying build more housing. So we have both ends of the dialogue and all we hope to do is encourage that dialogue so everybody has the chance to speak up. We understand that some may disagree with us and we respect that. Some hopefully agree with us and we have that right now as well. And we do plan to try to work between all the groups so that the community has something that they're proud of uh, that will serve people living in Waipaho for generations to come. That was developer Highridge Costa's Mo Mohana and landowner Kamehameha Schools Serge Krivatsi talking about Keavalau, a proposed mixed-use twin high-rise development in Waipaho. It would be located inland adjacent to the Waipaho rail station and the bus depot facility. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from the city to learn more about the TOD process. comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Locke Kelly, author of Shift into Freedom. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the science and practice of open-hearted awareness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The HOMA Select Talks series offers new perspectives and insights from curators and staff about select artworks from the permanent collection. More at honolulumuseum.org slash events. The state legislature is set to adjourn tomorrow. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So I know you've got a number of reporters down there, but they had a late <laughs> night. <at> the <laughs> they did. In session. fact, there, there's so much that happened yesterday, uh, the penultimate uh, session day uh, before they're concluding tomorrow on Thursday, uh, that it took three reporters and three great reporters, Kevin Dayton, Blaze Level, and Cassie Ordonio. And, and it was it was indeed a late night for them uh, because a lot of stuff passed or is poised to pass on on Thursday, um, I, this has been an historic session, a lot of good stuff, a lot of stuff that's, you know, making some people very unhappy as well. But um, I think the big story, there's so many big stories, but one of the biggest, I think, really has to do with uh, Native Hawaiians in terms of uh, Mauna Kea legislation, in terms of Hawaiian homelands, in terms of OHA. Uh, a number of things were passed or poised to pass. Uh, and usually a lot of Hawaiian groups leave the legislature kind of empty-handed, never really quite getting what they want. Well, thanks to that $2 billion-plus surplus, uh, that has made a lot of things possible uh, for this session. Yes. I mean, they've got millions, and, uh, uh, you know, we hope that that will help get 
uh, more people into homes, uh, you know, on Hawaiian homestead land. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, help to fund programs at OHA, you know, that will uh, help uh, people get a leg up. Right, and those are separate agencies. So we should make that clear, but they're both state agencies. And uh, Hawaiian Homelands—it's it's two part. It's a six hundred million dollar uh, funding appropriation to Hawaiian Homelands to help people get on, get off that wait list, and get places built, get housing. Separate to that is a settlement, a, a lawsuit settlement. In the Kalima case, as it's known, that's $328 million to settle this longstanding dispute. So nearly $1 billion regarding Hawaiian homelands. In terms of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, it's a lump sum payment. It's not the end of the discussion on how much OHA should get for ceded land revenue. Uh, they and quite simply think they should get more. They have a lot of arguments for that. The ledge has been reluctant to do that, but they did agree to a $64 million lump sum, and OHA folks were very happy about that. So so that's where DHHL and OHA stand. Yeah, and this is a nail-biting time. I was talking to the spokesman mm. over at DHHL yesterday afternoon, and he said, I just got a copy of the bill like 10 minutes ago, and they were going over it, you know, to make sure that everything that they wanted, you know, was in place, and there wasn't going to be some snag uh, was that was that uh, Cedric Dort yes. that you were talking yes. to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, William Isla uh, is the director over there, and he'll be finishing his term with uh, the EGA administration. But yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, nail biting, as you said. And it's not everything's not completely done. As I said, the DHHL bill does have a final vote tomorrow, but it sure looks like it's ready to pass. And Mauna Kea. I know that mm. uh, you know there was a compromise and a five-year yeah. uh, term to transition from uh, you know UH managing the mountain right. uh, to this new authority. Yeah, it's an eleven-member uh, stewardship authority, and yeah, it would take about five years. I think by twenty twenty-eight, it would be in place. To and yeah, they're giving the university some time to transfer. UH is not happy about this. They have fought this legislation. They'd prefer to keep UH running the uh, the astronomy portion up up top there. We'll see where this goes. David Ige, the governor, has expressed some concerns as well. But among other things, this compromise requires that the state itself support astronomy that it actually be a state policy, uh, that this authority that would be created, which would include Native Hawaiians, I think, but also UH representation, would advance programs uh, to support astronomy. Lorena Noy, I can tell you the Big Island senator, one of several Big Island senators, didn't like it at all. She says this is redundant. This is not a thing to do. Others are saying, hey, it's a, at least it's a compromise. We'll see where this goes. Uh, but it was a, you know, not a unanimous vote, shall we put it that way, in the House and Senate. Yeah, and even the Native Hawaiian group, you know, the protectors, they didn't like right. the bill when it first came out either. So. Yeah, well, we'll see. Mm. These these bills often have a way of, you know, and as I said, Governor Ige has had some concerns not too long ago, but we'll see. Uh, we still got some time for that. And what else happened yesterday, Catherine? So well, much. you know, I, I know the teachers will get a, a ah, bit of a pay raise. Good. More than a bit. It's $130 million in pay raises. That's going to about 8700 These are senior teachers. It's really to resolve what are known as salary compression issues, professional development issues, a recognition that seniority counts. There's another 300 excuse me, there's another $32 million going for another initiative to help teachers in special ed, Hawaiian language, rural areas. So a big lump of money going to help school teachers, something that they've been pushing for for a very very long time. Yeah, and I know that there uh, they did pass uh, some legislation on bail reform, some a bill that did not everybody's happy with, but maybe that's a story for another day. Right, and and read Kevin and Blaze's and, and Cassie's story, but but set aside fifteen minutes. You're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, that was uh, editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Again, yeah, read read the legislative wrap. Uh, visit civilbeat.org. You know, earlier this week, we featured a couple of stories about Ukraine. We had an American who retired there, as well as a Russian woman watching her Ukrainian city being bombed by Russian troops. We also heard from a Ukrainian woman living here in Honolulu who has worked in the movie industry. 
She tells us Steven Spielberg has Ukrainian roots, as does actor Sylvester Stallone. And on social media, Hawaii musician Nicole Scherzinger has proudly proclaimed her Hawaiian, Filipino, and Ukrainian heritage. Today, we take the time to look at Ukrainian history on the sugar plantation. We walk the grounds of the Waipahu Plantation Village with docent and board member Robert Castro, who began researching the little-known history of Ukrainians who were brought over from Europe to work in the sugar fields when a visitor inquired about them. He found out he has family connects with Ukraine as well. The museum focuses on the main groups of workers we hear most about, from China, Japan, Okinawa, Korea, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico. But workers also included the Swedes, Italians, as well as Poles, Russians, and Ukrainians too. Here's Castro describing the structures in the village. So most of them are what they call reconstructions. Measurements were taken from original structures and then recreated here. And the two originals, or sort of, uh, the Chinese uh, cookhouse is a restored building on its original foundations. And the other one was the Wakamiyanari Shrine that was brought here from, uh, originally built in Kaka'ako around 1914. And then it was relocated to Baratania Street and finally found a home here. It was going to be bulldozed. So some folks here raised money to move it here. So the Portuguese house, we have the bread oven in the back. That comes from Maui. Then we come to the Puerto Rican family home again with a separate kitchen measured from the Japanese camp. The house is um, measured from the original on the island of Kauai. And this reminds me of my Puerto Rican grandfather and my Portuguese grandmother in Kauai. Eventually my mother's family moved here. Uh, we're coming to the Filipino camp. We have a place to wash clothes. The last thing of single man who was going to do is wash his own clothes. So it provided a lot of these women who came here with opportunities to earn money to help supplement their family incomes, whether it was washing clothes or cooking, sewing their clothes, washing, this whole thing, you know. This is a dormitory for single men. This is built from the architectural plans of the HSPA. And so if the Filipinos were the last group. Immigrant group in 1906. And that lasted pretty much until the end of the war, World War II. And so do we know uh, what type of housing the Ukrainians were housed in? Uh, well, 1898, I haven't a clue. I think all we can do is look at other groups, other Europeans who came about that time. Uh, we know that some groups complained because the housing that they, they had to go into, but I think some of it may coincide when the plantations were established because in the early days they were Hawaiians and so people were shoved into Hawaiian houses and so you look at a big island Japanese camp but it's all grass shacks. And so uh, where did the Ukrainians go? I mean you found some documents yeah. that actually listed. Well, yeah I found two. Um, well the Staskos were in uh, the, on the Hamakua coast and that's where that other Russian family. The other one I found was from Makawao. So we have these two that I've been researching a little bit. And of course, like so many people, they gravitated to Honolulu over time because this is where the jobs were. You got the naval base. So a lot of, you find a lot of people working at the naval base, uh, even though they were, uh, their, their ancestors came from these various countries. You know. Yeah, so the, the Staskos that were here, you know, in 1898, uh, worked for the plantation. They had two brothers, and then uh, one married here. The other brought his wife with him, and uh, you know their descendants uh, married a cousin of mine. <laughs> and so that's pretty cool. When, when I did research, when she asked me about it, and uh, so you have these all these different connections. You know, it's it's interesting. And then Glushenko, that was another name. Right, uh, Glushenkos. Uh, I found them at the Hamakua coast. Uh, and then um, uh, they were also on uh, Maui. So apparently as the younger children went on their own, they kind of moved around. And, um, and of course, you know, the women are going to marry somebody whose job is going to take them elsewhere. And so that happens. So a, a lot of the folks that came from Russia or Ukraine, mm -hmm. that part, Poland, that, that part of the world, uh, a lot of them went back or they left uh, Hawaii, went elsewhere. Um, you know, there were so few that I really not sure. I know one, you know, one woman I found in Snohomish, Washington, but it's like so many people from Hawaii, and it's not that they went in huge numbers, 
But, you know, I have my grandmother's sister went in 1908. I found them on the passenger list going to the Bay Area. So here they left the plantations on Kauai, and then the men end up working at the sugar factory <laughs> where the sugar was refined and uh, where the brand C&H comes from. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of amusing, actually. And so then the Ukrainians, uh, like I said, it wasn't a very large group. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't stay very long. Some people remain, uh, and uh, some people died here. Sure. And so as I was researching, uh, it's very typical of other families, no matter what their ethnic backgrounds were, because people are pursuing you know, wherever the jobs are, and so that would take them elsewhere eventually. Yeah. It's like my father's family started on the big island in Maui, and then they ended up here in Waipahu. My mother's family was on Kauai and ended up here in Waipahu, and then my parents married each other, you know? Right. And they so, came from Portugal? Uh, Portugal, Brazil, the Azores, um, and of course, Puerto Rico, and uh, yeah. So then I guess when you do these tours now, yeah. I mean... Uh, it brings back a lot of memories, especially when I get to the, uh, the Puerto Rican family home, because it reminds me of my Puerto Rican heritage. I did not grow up with that heritage, although I always knew I was part Puerto Rican. And uh, so now, you know, kind of living it when I come here uh, makes me appreciate that more. And that your cousin's wife is from Ukraine, has ties to, <laughs> well, to that part of the world. Too. Ukraine, Russia, Poland, whatever they called it at a particular time. <laughs> yeah. That was Robert Castro, docent and board member of the Waipahu Plantation Village, talking about our community's ties to Ukraine as part of our sugar plantation history. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. The white eye, or the majiro, can be found at sea level and up to elevations above 10,000 feet. So there's a good chance you've seen a few in your backyard. I know I have a couple in mine. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart has their song for you with today's Manu Minute. The warbling wide-eye, or majiro, is a non-native bird that was first introduced to Hawaii from Japan in 1929. It is now the most common bird in all of Hawaii, occurring just about everywhere. They're green and gray with a very distinctive white ring around their eyes, and they're only about four inches tall. So small, they're more often heard than seen. White-eyes are known as generalists. They eat a variety of food, such as insects, fruit, and nectar. They're considered competitors when they live in the same forest as our native birds. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and kama'aina since 1993. More information at hawaii-forest.com. Earlier in the show, we took off our hiking boots to wiggle our toes in the olive-hued sand at Papakolea Beach in the Kau District. The glassy volcanic beach is formed by the erosion and the concentration of the semi-precious stone ovaline, originating from the nearby Pu'umahana cinder cone. The earth erodes these stones into sand, which is considered too fine to be a gem. However, people have likened the experience to walking on jewels. Green sand beaches are rare, and the U.S. can boast of two, Papakolea Beach on Hawaii Island and the other, Talafofo Beach in Guam. And congrats to our winner, Leah McPherson, who lives in Kau. She said she had friends from Guam who she took to Hawaii's green sand beach. And Leah, it, it might interest you to know that I have some of that sand from Guam in my home. I brought it over. Uh, growing up in Guam, uh, I know that area well. So yeah, fabulous, fabulous sand. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for uh, one, please write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
know, the legislative session uh, saw successes for things like minimum wage and affordable housing, and while other initiatives, you know, were tabled as well for next time. But amid these hot-button topics, a quiet resolution rose up, a measure for a yearly state poet laureate. The Hawaii Council for Humanities will be one of three organizations called upon to establish the new program. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Aiko Yamashiro, director for the Hawaii Council for Humanities, about the resolution and the role of poetry in our civil life. It's so exciting. If you get a chance to read it, I feel like the resolution itself sounds like poetry to me. I'm talking about the importance of art and storytelling and the different diverse cultures and voices that we have here in Hawaii and then what something like a state poet laureate could do to help encourage and support all of those things. It's a really beautifully written resolution. What is really clear in it and what I know the three organizations support is this idea that we're trying to establish a program to really activate lots of poets, not just not just honor one fabulous one, which we want to do, but also activate lots of people writing and sharing and reading. Less of the idea that there is this one one very fancy poet who's going to go around and do readings um, and talk about how wonderful they are, but rather one wonderful fancy poet um, who has demonstrated commitment to teaching, to community, to this place over years and then who will be able to create really awesome community events throughout the islands and get lots of people writing and talking and sharing poetry and feeling the power of that in their own lives. So this idea of poetry as community, I think, is a a real strong element of this resolution and something that I think the ideal State Poet Laureate would, would really value as well. Hmm. I like the idea of us as a community naming and deciding upon our fanciest poet. (laughs) (laughs) This resolution has come before both the the House and the Senate, but it is competing for attention with legislation on the economy, on education, on our continued pandemic recovery, on climate change. And at first glance, it may seem like poetry is not the most important conversation that we need to have right now. What would you say to encourage both lawmakers and the public to pay attention to poetry? I think one of my favorite things about poetry is that it doesn't have to be in competition with these things. Rather, it can be a voice and a kind of heart and a way of thinking and feeling and sharing that runs through all of the things that you named and connects them. One of my favorite lines in the resolution is how storytelling and literature can strengthen civic responsibility and civic engagement. Because when we do poetry, we are thinking deeper. We are kind of expanding our ability to empathize and understand with somebody else. We are building a stronger connection to who we are in our own voice, And then we're also opening ourselves up to each other. And that connection between poetry and civics is really exciting for me because I've seen again and again just how poetry in different spaces can strengthen communities and bring that heart and bring that soul into, into really tough issues about climate change. It can bring voice to young elementary school students and help them love writing and share what their ideas are. It can be brought into healthcare spaces and and help people connect with each other. It can be brought into spaces of trauma. Uh, It can be brought into celebrations and hard things, and I think help people share stories that really matter, share things that they mean with each other, and do it in a way where we really also learn to listen to each other. That was Aiko Yamashiro, director for the Hawaii Council for Humanities, speaking with Savannah Harriman Pote about the legislative resolution to name a yearly state poet laureate. And that very fancy poet already has company. Last weekend, uh, this past weekend, the Maui Arts and Cultural Center named 18-year-old Kalihua Fung as Hawaii's Youth Poet Laureate. She's the second person to hold a title, and she's earned the, uh, the honor with her poem, Ode to Messes. Fung, a recent graduate of Oahu's Halau Kumana New Century Public Charter School, caught the poetry bug in the eighth grade when she and a classmate performed a class project on consumerism as a slam poem. 
I think there was like a standard that was like taking these trees minute by minute, then told to consume what's made of it. We're taught it's okay to exhaust all our resources, but at what cost? Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so you're in the eighth grade, you're picking up poetry for the first time, and you pull together that. I see now why you've been chosen (laughs) as the the Youth Poet Laureate for Hawaii. I would love to hear the poem that you performed that won you the title. (laughs) Would you be okay sharing it with us today? Yeah. Okay, wonderful. (laughs) I stand in the middle of my room, crumpled up paper, pens, clothes on my floor. Life is messy sometimes. Sometimes you just have to make do with the chaos that you have. Thoughts are like race cars on a track in your head. You are always thinking of what to wear next, what to say to the boy or girl you like, what homework is due tomorrow, what pencil to use, where are your books? Life is really messy sometimes and pretty complex, but you'll get through it. You'll make do of it. Our queen, Liuo Kalani, held prisoner in her room. As resplendent and efficacious as she was, she too was held amongst a mess. Used her tears as thread, her sorrow as fabric, and sewed together the most alluring creation our eyes have ever seen. A quilt birthed from messes. Her pride and love poured into the colors, the memory of her land lingering in her head always. A mess of her people in anguish as a foreign government took over. Their guns labeled power and money, their bullets of hatred coated with selfishness. A mess of probably her own mind. Sorrow and melancholy, despair and desperation, where each planet's probably taking up occupation in the space in her head, but also with her questions came faith and hope, optimism above all others. Tore dresses apart and curtains for fabric, embedded in her quilt is the impact felt from other egotistical actions you see from messes of dresses and messes of others' heads she built. She set her foundation when all else was shaking and storming her quilt. Evidence above all that if you have faith, your messes can turn into beauty, your turmoil to calm seas, your mayhem and chaos to blue skies and gentle breezes. You may not see it yet, but surely it's coming. This is an ode to messes because from it there is redemption, from it there is creation, from there there is even growth. This is an ode to messes because from it the most magnificent butterflies are created. I want to start off with the historical scene you're referring to, the house arrest of Queen Leokulani. What was it about that time in history or that event in history that captured your attention? To be honest, a lot of my poems were written on a whim. <laughs> and um, it just so happened that it was Liwo Kalani's birthday. And being a Hawaiian charter school, we celebrated her birthday. We were in like English class, like language arts class. And the teacher just like gave me a challenge to like see if I could write a poem about Liliu. And she was like, oh, you know, like her quilt. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> and so um, it was. it's really hard to hear about what she went through. For anyone, it would be hard to experience that. Like she couldn't even like speak to her people you know she was kept in a room like in a house like in her own house she was kept in one room with like barely anything to do and so like she would have to use like curtains for fabric and dress like her own dresses you know like dresses that should have been in like museums and stuff like that stuff was all she had to comfort herself along with like her own words and like her own music And so I think just that feeling of like isolation and not being able to do anything, especially as like being a queen, like, you know, you have all this responsibility and, but I think she was really strong in that and she was really steadfast in like herself to be able to like pull herself through that. I think her quilt is like the biggest thing we have as like remembrance, remembrance of that that makes sense (laughs) yeah I think that can be tricky for people with history is it feels so inaccessible and so we can easily distance ourselves from it but in your poem you start off by placing the listener or the reader essentially in their own room in a scene that at least is very familiar to me (laughs) (laughs) feeling overwhelmed by the chaos of your own life and kind of trapped which is I think a feeling we've all become more familiar with as we've 
intermittently sheltered in place during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. What do you think the role of poetry is in fostering empathy? I think it really puts you into perspective. Some of like my favorite poetry has like beautiful imagery and it just places you into the scene so that you can, you know, like close your eyes and imagine that you're there. And I think that really helps you to understand. And I, for one, really didn't think that poetry, I'd be good at poetry. I I remember like in third grade, I didn't like our, (laughs) we had it in the curriculum and we were learning about poetry and I didn't like it because I thought it was like, I was not good at it. But, you know, like, eventually you'll come around to it. And, like, if you just write out what you're thinking, like, there's no rules for poetry. There's no set boundaries of, like, what's good and what's not. It's That's what's so great about it. It's, like, just an outlet for you to feel things and for you to process. Ode to Messes. Love that poem. We've been hearing from Kalehua Fung. Remember her name, Kalehua Fung. She was just named Hawaii Second Youth Poet Laureate. She spoke with the conversation, Savannah Harriman Pope. That does it for us for this Wednesday, but up tomorrow, we continue to look at transit-oriented development in Waipahu. Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard today? Find all of our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.